treat yourself to a little something organic. Cora's whisper-thin yet mighty absorbent pads have a breathable 100% organic cotton top sheet and are made without fragrance, dyes, and chlorine. Because your vulva's not a hot tub. With patented smart channels for up to eight hours of leak protection, Cora's got you covered however you flow. Plus, Cora donates period products to people in need with every purchase. Find Cora nationwide at Target, CVS, and online at cora.life. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. More boxing history coming your way, and this time we're back, back with my dude Arispina, CompuBox operator, and just a fight historian like myself, a lover of this kind of stuff. How are you doing, man? Doing good, bro. We're going to have a fun subject today. Um, you know, the bounce back really quickly from the last time we had a show. Uh, Ryan Garcia had an impress- impressive knockout, so on the heels of that, it's actually a pretty quiet week. I don't think anything's really coming up, right? Nothing big anyway. I mean, that's not to slight anybody who's fighting on the weekend, but still, it's just nothing nothing huge. And so we got to come up with stuff, right? We got we exactly. to come up with su- subjects. Sometimes you got to come up with a few things. And with that being said, you know, we've uh, been focusing a lot on the 80s, talking about true crime, other stuff like that. And so, you know, we decided, both of us were talking the other day, and we were like, you know, how well, about somebody that was like super popular in the 80s? Someone that, um, well, a whole family for it, for that matter. It wasn't just the one guy, but he was the most popular one of the bunch. But someone for a brief moment, you would say, like, captivated television audiences in the early 80s because he was just a wild maniac, you know? And then you had um, the outside influences, which was their mother, going equally crazy, if not crazier. So we're talking about um, the Fletcher family, most notably Frank the Animal Fletcher, and um, his lesser known brother, but even more compelling story, Anthony Fletcher. And there was a third brother as well, as you mentioned, right? Yeah, th- there's an uncle who was very good and a third brother, uh, yeah. Troy, Troy Fletcher, Troy whose nickname Fletcher. was 40, which is like, you know, kind of figures into this narrative, unfortunately, but nonetheless. Kind of the other two, 40 Fletcher, I like it. It's, it, it's got a ring to it for sure. But it's the, the entire family um, definitely has their own story their own just kind of well i mean it's it's wild it's unique it's it's interesting with such a crazy story and with all the background going on to it and like the the characters involved that there hasn't been more stories written about them over the years totally and, um, or, or just like anything really featured on them like that i mean you gotta you know i understand that like their careers didn't really pan out as they kind of flamed out quicker than than normal but at the same time when you really look back and how we're going to discuss this today it's, it's a wild ride. It, it definitely is. You know, a lot of bumps in the road, a lot of ups and downs and stuff like that, but it's quite interesting to say the least. The vast majority of the stuff that happens on the street takes place in West Philadelphia. So it's like, it's like Born everybody Ray. knows, everybody knows the, the Fresh Prince intro, <laughs> Yeah. you know, in West Philadelphia, but it's like in the playgrounds where I spend most of my, Max and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. couple of guys they were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood that was literally frank fletcher the guys <laughs> up to trouble you know up to no good was frank fletcher for sure dude was uh you know he, he got into a lot of trouble uh throughout his life and that's obviously kind of a common thread for a lot of the lot of these true crime episodes that we do and also kind of like to 
dig a little bit deeper than just sitting there and laughing at these people who committed crimes or were sucked into this lifestyle, but also trying to understand some of the circumstances surrounding them and why this happened, not just sitting here and passively going, but going, you know, you can understand why, because this is the start. So, I mean, it all really started because Philadelphia, as you, you know, we were talking right before we started recording, but Philadelphia, famous fighting city um, for a whole handful of reasons. But Joe Frazier, probably the most, even though he was not originally from Philadelphia, in the 1960s, Joe Frazier was really who seemed to uh, push Philadelphia back into the limelight because it had been previously but back into the limelight and kind of make it a fighting city again. He had opened a gym, encouraged a bunch of younger kids to get into gyms. He obviously inspired, et cetera. And around also the same time, roughly, was bad Benny Briscoe. You know, that was one of the also cult hero, bro. Absolute cult massive hero. influence, massive, massive influence around the streets of Philadelphia, man. Everybody loved Benny Briscoe. I mean, he would have been a massive favorite today if he was around. Just a tough, hard luck guy who would fight anybody, anytime, anywhere, and spent his um, nine to fives as an exterminator. You know, just like a really tough dude. And what they said was, and as um, Hall of Fame promoter and Benny Briscoe's promoter, Russell Peltz, once said that um, when Benny Briscoe would go to houses for extermination and stuff, he just took a bat. And if someone told him where the rat was, he'd find where the rat was and just bash it out himself. Like he didn't have any cans or any type of pesticides or whatever. Just <laughs> he just took care of business with his hands. You know what I mean? That's the type of dude Betty Briscoe was, just a badass all around. And um <laughs> and one of those guys that um you always wished he was gonna win a world title. And he came very close a few times, fought everybody. You know, you look at his record, it's easy, you know, look it up on box rec, man. It's a who's who. Of, of fighters from the 60s and 70s up until up until the very early 80s um of like just top-notch competition man in the middleweight division briscoe shined nobody and he had a slam bang style perfectly right for the city um blue collar guy he just he just fit in well so yeah man there was definitely a dearth once he retired there was a lot of people because briscoe was such a you know he was on par with joe frazier you know what i mean like you really think about it you had guys like in the in the in the 60s and 70s you had Frazier, you, um, Stanley Kitten Hayward was more from the sixties, but you know, he was a massive favorite. Um, you, uh, like I said, um, the gypsy Joe Harris, you know, remember him with the, the fighter with one eye who captivated audiences for the brief time that he was around before he had a very dark, um, second half of his life. And then as well <clears throat> with Benny Briscoe. But once Briscoe, you know, started fading away in the late 70s and ultimately retiring in the early 80s, you know, Philadelphia was still trying to look for that new hero. They had Matthew Saad Muhammad, the light heavyweight champion, who obviously was a slam bang, one of the greatest action fighters in history. But by the time the early 80s started coming on too, Saad Muhammad was already past his peak. You know what I mean? He had been in a ton of wars at that point. Uh, name him, he'd been in them. You know what I mean? Yaki Lopez, um, Marvin Johnson. Every fight was a struggle. Every fight, Every fight was a war. Even just as even the fights that weren't even on that level, like, you know, against um, Bonzel Johnson or even Murray Sutherland, you know what I mean? Like, Saad Muhammad would get beat up. So at that point, he was withering, he was on the vine. So, you know, there's a new crop of guys coming up. Curtis Parker, another middleweight, um, 
who I'm sure we'll mention later on in the show, he was starting to come on the scene in a little bit, but the person that was really just captivating everybody and kind of out of the blue was Frank the Animal Fletcher. You know, like you said, he had a really tough background, a really rough background, kind of a dead-end kid that no one really thought he had a future, but his family was entrenched in boxing, like you said. Um, his mom was one of the toughest people apparently on the block, you know what I mean? She claimed that she taught out her whole family how to fight. And if you looked and you saw her ringside, you can see that she was very lively and probably could throw a good one too. And the uncle that she mentioned was um, a professional middleweight and a contender by the name of Dick Turner. So he had boxing in his blood. So there was an alternative besides him just being a dead end kid. Yeah, his his mom was named uh, Lucille Fletcher. And unless um, unless I'm mistaken, and I I just missed it and couldn't find it, I believe she's actually still alive. Really? And I I believe so. She'd be um, old as dirt if she is. Wow. I would believe she would be in her 80s. Really? Only. I think I'd have to look again, but in any case, you, you might be, I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. Be I, I kind of, I tried to For look, sure. as well. I tried to look as well um, before and there's not much out there. Like you said, so there was an article from about 10 years ago. And you would think you find an obituary. Well, she was definitely alive 10 years ago and she was definitely yeah. active in the community and totally fine in terms of health. So, uh, and I couldn't find anything. So I, I would imagine she's still alive, but in any case, um, what's that? <laughs> That's like good for her. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that in a sec. But uh, so her name was Lucille Fletcher, and her maiden name was Turner. Yes. She grew up in Philadelphia. She was an amateur judge for a number of years. She had eleven brothers and sisters. She said she grew up listening to Joe Lewis fights on the radio and loved Ray Robinson when TV had finally kind of come around and she got to see more like Robinson dad. fights. <laughs> and uh, she said she learned how to fight because her mom and her grandma used to send her to school all dressed up and with bows tied in her hair and she used to get picked on. So she learned how to fight before too long and that people in the school were call calling her little Joe Lewis. <laughs> and so uh, her, she had two brothers who were pro fighters actually. And one of them, the more famous one, Dick Turner, actually defeated two really good fighters in Negro Thompson, uh, Luis Thompson and Isaac Logart. Um, he lost two fights in a row, 63 and 64, one being to one guy that you had talked about, Stanley Kitten Hayward, really good uh, Philadelphia middleweight. And he in that, what's that? He was the man. He was, he was awesome. There, I don't know if there still is, but there was footage of him up on YouTube. You can see. I believe so. I mean, if you can, if you can look it up, his fight with Curtis Cox is absolutely. That's fun. that was the yeah that was the full fight that was up. I don't know if it still is, great but I mean fight. it's great, and great Curtis fight. and yeah and Curtis Cox was skilled himself, wound up being a really good trainer later on. Uh, in any case, he suffered against uh, Stanley Hayward, a really badly detached retina. And the injury ended his career, uh, Dick Turner, that is. And so, like you, you had mentioned earlier, Lucille had apparently taught Dick Turner and her other brothers and sisters how to fight, which in and of itself is funny, considering the success he wound up going yeah. on to have. That's and what she said. She always said that. She taught her whole family how to fight. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. You know, like, I, I like to also bring up, like, the sources, and I'm not just going to steal somebody else's information. Like, when I've done my own research, that's one thing. But if I'm pulling information from, like, you know, largely from one article or something, there was a really good Sports Illustrated article back in, I think it was 83 or something like that, um, that's just on Lucille. 
And so a lot of this information is coming from that article. It's a really mm -hmm. good article and just funny and fun, but also kind of scary at times. And we'll get to that in a sec. But um, apparently during one day, her brother, Honey Boy, was about to get jumped out in front of their house in Philadelphia. So she ran inside and broke off a banister pole from their stairs and grabbed a milk bottle and came out with, so in, with one in each hand. And yeah. they ran off and they got their brothers and there was like almost a big family brawl. Gangster. Oh, no. Whew, man, that's, that's, that's pretty rough. Dude. That's pretty wild. So, and Dick Turner once said, I punched her once and she hit me so hard. My nose bled and my suspenders popped off. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a pretty good shoot there too. But at the same time, Lucille... Yeah. She was feisty though. If you if you're if you listen to the show and you're a fan of the '80s, and I know a lot of our uh, listeners are, for sure, um, then you definitely remember her because all the, if you just look up Frank Fletcher. You will see her at some point ringside going. Just you see her revving up each round. She's like getting a little bit more excited, a little bit more excited, and then like when things really start picking up, either Frank gets rocked or he rocks somebody, or some shit starts popping off. That's when you see her almost like in the audience, still throwing chairs, about to start a riot. And it's incredible. She was wild for sure. And Although, she would carry around like a like a pet, like you know, stuffing animal yep. for him, all that stuff, like the whole deal. <laughs> yeah, she was she was all dressed up in like a frilly suit, and yeah, yeah. She obviously uh, wanted to be noticed and wanted to make a bunch of noise and whatnot. And for and, and for networks that were like televising boxing, that was easy gold for them right there to pick up on and like televise that. That was like not only going to see Frank Fletcher in a great fight, you're going to see their crazy ass mom ringside going wild. So it's a one-two combo. She had a really, she had a raspy voice because she was a heavy smoker, uh, still alive apparently, or what, or to our knowledge, but she was a heavy smoker and she had a really raspy, like strong, you know, almost like kind of jazz singer type of voice, like, you know, and so she'd be yelling from ringside and you would hear yeah. And, and on top of that, she would also, she was an amateur judge. She wasn't a pro judge yep. and she would uh coach or counsel some of the fighters that she would judge at the same time but man she also she said said and did some pretty head scratching shit like for instance she was talking about the Holmes Cooney fight and, and basically reacting I guess to the stoppage from that fight and said that she had Jerry Cooney way ahead number one which is kind of like okay that's kind of stupid but all right and then number two, she said that she thought it was a bad stoppage. <laughs> there was another. There was another one. I don't recall where I read it. Somewhere online or something, or maybe it was in the magazine. But she talked about judging an amateur fight where a kid clearly won a fight against another person, but she judged for the other guy, and she said it. And she and the kid like questioned her afterwards, and she said the reasons was like oh, you moved around too much. You weren't trying to be aggressive enough or something like that. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm telling you, that's not how you win fights. Like it was some out, out this world logic that like kind of contends that she yeah. probably wasn't the best gauge of talent. Like probably shouldn't have been involved in she was, a fight like that. But yeah, it's like she had, wow. she had street smarts, I'm sure. But she was just, she was wild. And uh, oh. perhaps not the best judge overall. <laughs> but well, I but mean, yeah, you know. You know. What a but a person who obviously trained her entire family had to fight. Um, when she has kids, they're obviously gonna be involved in boxing some way, somehow. So of course, like yes, well, and she had a number of a number of children, and so it was, you know, somebody was gonna wind up doing something. 
And one of the funny things also reading that article and others, because uh, Frank Fletcher used to do this all the time. Anthony seemed to be a little bit more like he had oh, his I head did. screwed a little bit more like he had his head screwed on better and just kind of caught a bad rap overall. But uh, almost all of them would say these like little phrases and colloquialisms and shit, but they would say them like backwards. Okay. So, for, so for instance, one of the things that Frank said was he was talking about when he was being a, when he was a troublemaker when he was young and he said, I started stealing when I was knee high to a hopper grass, <laughs> which, which when you say it the correct way is a great phrase in and of itself, but that just makes it even better. And mm -hmm. then, and then Lucille had talked about something like uh, that Frank has more lives than a frog, than more has more chances than a frog with nine lives. <laughs> you know, like something like that. Frog like, with nine dude, lives. You know, just wild shit like that. It's just funny. Yeah, 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 you know, awesome. like somebody who purports to like know everything, but just you know throws these kind of weird, like bad phrases out there. But like you said, uh, you know. It, it really, this environment in Philly, though, the working class nature of it, like you had brought up before, I think that that's, that's pretty important because in West Philadelphia, not the greatest uh, part of Philadelphia, needless to say, historically, and it, that part of Philadelphia has, excuse me, has seemed to produce a whole number of fighters or a number of kind of like, you know, tough characters. And so, yeah, like that's well, you, you froze for one second. What part of Philly were you talking? West Philly. West Philly, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's I mean, all of Philadelphia is just known as being generally tough. Like North Philadelphia gets a bad rap for being a really tough area. Um, but yeah, in terms of Philly, just like they 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 just have the reputation in boxing. It's always been a hotbed for boxing. People always talk about Philadelphia, you know, blood and guts. Um the anniversary today, for instance, is um is Shane Mosley, Vernon Forrest, too. Remember the undercard with Eric Harding against Antonio Tarver, too? When Harding gets dropped and gets up, hey, you okay? You okay? He's clearly out. Everybody goes, I'm from Philadelphia. Like, you know, that kind of, it, it gives you, I think, what's that? Today is like the 20th anniversary, actually, of that. Um, that gives you an idea. Like, you know, Shit, Philly's tough, crazy. man. It's crazy. I just remember watching that, like, yesterday, 20 years ago. That's wild. But, yeah, it's... um. Philly tough, man. You know, you can't beat that type of shit. And, like then, and then fucking Merch, who was a writer, a sports writer in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. You could tell he felt years. so proud He's for like, <laughs> he got up, the referee asked him, but he's okay. And he said, I'm from <laughs> Philadelphia. He was so happy when he heard that. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I can't deny it. That was a badass line, even though he was totally concussed. But, oh um, yeah, he he got it was like he he got hit with that southpaw versus southpaw curse, just taking the left hand over and over and over and just got wonked. But um, you know, like I said, man, Philly guys, they, there was there was a gap after that bit though. And when Frank Fletcher, like you said, he had a he had a tough past. Like you, you know, a lot of jail, a lot of different things going on with him. By the time he turned pro, they're wasn't really a lot going on from there was not not much hope or anything like that um did he already have the gap teeth by that point i don't he, know he goes I, don't, in prison, I think right <clears throat> to be honest i don't know exactly when that happened because there were there were earlier photos of him. 
I think it might have like he I think he said I don't I don't quote me here if you're listening but like if I'm if I'm remembering I think I read it and again this might have been you know there was a ring magazine in uh, 83 where they did like the full-long article of it that's the cover of Dwight Braxton with holding you know the the Seagram's ring title yeah and on the topic they talk about Frank Fletcher anyways I think in that article I think he mentions he got into a scrap dude caught him with a two-piece and his teeth obviously were lifted and so he just kind of like he realized they were loose he plucked them out and went right back to fighting which is i didn't even know that but that's pretty wild all right i'm you know i'm i can't speak for our listeners and i know you know i'm not going to speak for you or whatever but i'm going to tell you right now if i got caught with a two-piece in a fight and both my fronts got lift you know got loose like that and i pulled them out fights over yeah, you win. Okay, I'm going off. I'm taking off. Brother. Like that. That's it, bro. You, you caught me. Times out. Times. <laughs> times out. Times oh, out. No, no, yeah, yeah, no. Hold up, really sick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going. I'm going Boss. to the hospital now. Thank you. Fuck that. <laughs> nah, man. So Frank was a different type of animal. No pun intended. Like honestly, <laughs> actually, pun fully intended. Yeah. Well, he truly was, like, bro. You know, he he spent most of his most of his youth in reform schools, several different reform schools, according to him, started getting in trouble at about the age of nine. He said that he couldn't remember what it was, but that he either stole a car or uh, had beaten somebody up, but that he couldn't remember what it was. He said that he was inspired to start fighting because of his uncle, Dick Turner. He went to a, a gym on 52nd and Woodland Avenue in Philly. And then he got with promoter Russell Peltz, J. Russell Peltz, because, uh, you know, he had a lot of heart. He showed a lot of drive in the ring. And he obviously was, he had some amount of talent. He wasn't just like totally brute or anything like that, but he was entertaining. And Peltz um, has had a good eye for fighters who were going to draw well locally. And so that's pretty much precisely how it happened or well, not in detail, he'd have to tell you, but regardless, uh, one time Peltz did save him. He's the only fighter I ever knew who had two cut men, one for each side, because Frank was a bleeder in a number of even his early fights and he fought hard. Uh, he built up a lot of scar tissue around his face. A lot of the, the uh, close-ups photos that you see, like that famous one where he's smiling and missing all of his teeth, you could see he's got a lot of scar tissue around his face, even just like nicks and stuff like that cuts all over. Um, served a few years in Holmesburg State Prison in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia for simple assault. And I mean, unfortunately, though, going back over a story, and this was something I had mentioned to you like a couple days ago or whatever it was, that I, because I was just in disbelief reading this article, his mom, Lucille, apparently used to hold his hand over a hot stove and threaten to burn him when he was bad. Wow. And that his is mom, insane. <laughs> and, and, but his mom also used to lock him in a dark cellar, which evidently it scarred him to the point where he couldn't sleep with the light off, even as an adult. So, I mean, like, look, dude, I'm not trying to go on a pedestal. I'm not trying to go on a rant. But I do think it's important to kind of point out that this is some pretty horrific abuse here, you know? Totally, totally. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine the, like, abandonment issues this would cause in a child and the trust issues when, like, mm -hmm. this is a family member and the person who's supposed to take care of you and your father's absent. 
And so like you're being subject to this kind of like just horrific shit. That's terrible. And so, I mean, I'm not making excuses like I have also said in other, uh, especially these true crime episodes, I'm not going to make an excuse for anybody. It's just that I feel as though this is far more understandable how, how a human being could get to this point where they're like in this loop, the cycle of being in legal trouble and like not just legal trouble, but like fucking soul trouble, you know? And totally. like, and you could see it, you, you can understand it when the mother of several children is doing things like this, it's, it seems as though the outcome is fairly predictable quite often. So uh, even later though, apart from the abuse during his career, when a lot, when a lot of people didn't really seem to know about a lot of this stuff during mm -hmm. his career, when Lucille was going nuts and stuff ringside, and it was more just kind of like, check out this wild, crazy mom. Frank even said in several interviews that he was embarrassed. Like he was like, "Mom, like chill, dude. Like you need to fucking chill out." And she'd never chill out. Are you kidding me? That was that was her. But and even so, uh, he was a pretty decent pro early on, and so he was a little bit more of a brawler than he should have be. Uh, he had two early losses, but in 1980, he actually beat two pretty solid fighters: a guy named Jerome Silky Jackson, a very very good amateur who was pegged to be, you know, much better than he wound up being as a pro. And our great dude, nickname too, by the way. What's that? It's a great nickname, too. Of, of course, dude. Silky Jackson. Silky? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Totally 80s. I loved it. And then our dude, yeah, and I'm he sure. He was carried on a stretcher in that fight, too. And I ain't going to lie, dude, because I didn't look up too many photos, but he had to have had a jerry curl. I mean, I'm sure. had to. And then also he beat our dude, Caveman Lee. William Caveman Lee. Absolutely. It's our boy. Um, Here's the thing. Well, when you talk about that run, when, when, um, excuse me, when he first turned pro, when Frank the Animal Fletcher first turned pro, it, it wasn't like he was, he was looked upon as like a top prospect or any, you know, he was at first just kind of regaled as like an opponent, a tough opponent. I'm sure a guy that would make for good fights, but still he was just like just another fight. Philly brawler or something. Just another Philly brawler. Exactly. But what really got his break, and we've talked about this in previous shows, the ESPN tournament. Remember those ESPN tournaments we've talked about way in the past that late? I was, I was, I was wondering if you were going to bring that up, and I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> I should have fucking known. Come on. You know, man, I can't disappoint you, bro. Anyways, <laughs> um, like those those tournaments way back in the day, they're totally defunct now, unless you count the Boxino, is that what it's called? <laughs> Something yeah. like that. But like, you know, they back in the early days of ESPN when they first made the debut doing sports all over, they had tournaments for the crown champions in their division. Yep. And that's not good to say you're going to be, you know, automatic. We did. Well, one of our true, sorry to interrupt you, but one of our true crime subjects before had, had participated in one of these ESPN tournaments too. So we, we have brought it up on a different yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. But that was the thing that would get you, that would get you televised thing. Like not, not everybody had ESPN back in the day and all their, on their stations, but it was still notoriety. You were getting televised fights. You were getting fighting often. You're on television and if you won the whole thing, that was only going to bring you more, you know, notoriety to build you up in the ratings. And so Fletcher, I think, came in as a substitute, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. But yep. He Correct. did, right? So, and then he ended up, like, tearing up in that tournament. Um, it was the, was the He went on, like, a six or seven fight? fight, like, knockout streak or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, and it all started in 1980. I want to see the Caveman Lee fight was a part of that tournament. Uh, um, it, it started... I'm sorry. I actually, actually, here, let me go to his record real quick and I'll tell you exactly what. Yeah, because I'm, I'm curious. I'm not. Not started on Ben Serrano. Okay. 
Yeah, it started on Ben Serrano. At the um, resorts. Yep. And, and then it was like from there, he wound up winning the, the title against Randy McGrady. Okay. And then right there, that was a whole thing that he came in as a substitute and no one, that no one thought had a chance. And he ends up winning the ESPN tournament. Yeah. And when you win that, that's like probably in the 80s, I would say that was one step uh, below being NABF USBA champion. Yeah, right? totally. It was like some regional, but like a eh, better than regional, but like better than regional. But I mean, that was kind of like, kinda like a back and forth. It was kind of like, uh, you know, ESPN created the title. To hopefully mm-hmm. make some excitement but also like hopefully winning that title would get them a fighter that fans would be interested in because now they'd seen them a few times you know that well, remember when in the like the 90s when the great western forum had the same tournaments totally yep and then like you win a car or some shit at the end of the tournament but like, yeah there'd so, be like a twenty thousand dollar prize or some whatever shit, it yeah. was but you'd also get like a big rating and probably a big fight after that too yep. right? so yeah totally same thing but Regardless of it, not only did he win that tournament, it wasn't like he did it boringly. This guy had a rampaging style that people were absolutely captivated by. Exactly. Like you said, he had the gap teeth already and the whole thing going on. Like he was made for television. Like they fell in love with him. And this was like a star that fell in their lap. This was totally unexpected. No one really knew where he came. Like, you know, when those guys that come out of nowhere, like Azuma Nelson, we talked about fighting Salvador Sanchez, that that um anniversary is coming up. Or like the people of the unexpected, when someone just come, kind of comes out of the blue, people are just like, whoa, you know, that's kind of what he did there. And for a city that's like looking for someone to really cling on to um, with televised boxing, looking for always looking to find like new talent and new stars that can like all, all the time um, televised because they know they're going to be in demand. and They're going to provide good action. Fletcher was made for all of it. This was like yeah. he couldn't ask for a bigger break. He fought on a couple of those Rawway State Prison cards that they had, yes. uh, and so he actually had a lot of exposure early on in his career. Fighting Dwight Braxton's brother, actually. Yep. Dwight, yeah. Uh, how he, yeah. He uh, had a lot of exposure. He fought on NBC a total of like by the time it was like eighty. Shit, I have to look like eighty-three or eighty-four. He fought like on NBC like six times. He fought on ESPN a bunch of times, so he was no no stranger. Like people. People knew who this who this dude was when he won that ESPN tournament. Uh, you know that was a pretty big push for his career, like you said. The following two years, eighty one and eighty two, another pretty good run. Uh, these kind of mid level middleweights that he was fighting and beating, fighters who were kind of like on the cusp of contention. Norberto Sabater, uh, a total bloodbath too against Ernie Singletary. Like a, it was a fucking absolute murder scene. Uh, James Hard Rock Green. Um, a win over a guy, Tony Braxton, you were just talking about, and he, he gave actually him early in his career. Yep, yeah. he gave him a draw and defeated him in a you know a short decision win early in his career. And Clint, the Sheriff Jackson, a very good amateur 1976 Olympian who could be his own true crime episode. Hint, hint, everybody. <laughs> but it was a good run. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's not Hall of Fame level shit. We're not arguing that. But we're just talking about for a guy coming up in his career, a guy with like, you know, 20 fights, 15, 20 fights or whatever it is. That's a good run. That's a really good slide in the contention, you know? And especially for the era, man, the middleweight division, we've talked about this countless times. The middleweight division of the 80s was really, really deep. It was really deep. It was really tough. A lot of badasses all around. Um, maybe not the same level of like this type of stuff Hagler had to go through in the 70s to get to the claw his way to a title shot away. It was a lot of really, really tough guys. And 
each of them had a ceiling, but like in different eras, who knows what they could have been. Regardless, the fact that Fletcher was able to build himself out of this, and when when he thought that no one even knew where he was, he was just a guy out of jail who really didn't have an amateur background or anything. He just learned how to fight on the street from his mom and from what he learned in jail. This wasn't this was pretty remarkable, and people clung on to it. He had a great backstory. You watched him on television. He didn't disappoint. Like you said, his fights were bloodbaths, man. He would get knocked around. He knocked the other guy around. He didn't have one punch power. He was more of an overwhelming type person, man. You just got overwhelmed by what he did. Like there was some craft to him, but like it was his pressure. It was the way he threw punches. He just never stopped. You could hurt him, but he would always come back. And then add in the fact that with his crazy mom ringside, you know, this was everybody wanted to televise this man. You couldn't beat a Fletcher fight. He was really, you know, he's popular. And with that, with that popularity builds rankings and it also builds people's ideas thinking that he can, you know, probably reach the heights that he obviously really can't. Like there is a limit to him, but everyone started thinking, hey man, what if Fletcher fought so-and-so? What if Fletcher fights Hagler one day? Like that's what they were building to, a Fletcher yep. Martin Hagler fight. That's what the whole end game was. He almost when, got there. He came in, real close, man. He was man. this close, very, very this close. So after he beats guys like Savitar, he beats any Ernie Singletary, like you said. He, um, he gains revenge on Tony Braxton. He beats uh, Clinton Jackson. Hard Rock Green, who was a fire plug. The guy was only 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, so whenever you see a person that, that's a middleweight, super middleweight, junior middleweight, like anyone who at that really small height, when you see them at that weight, they're built like a brick house. Hard Rock Green, that was a perfect nickname for him because he literally was built like a bull. Yeah, he's like Howie at heavyweight. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, but he was shredded, dude. He was a tough, tough guy. You know, he gave John Mugabe absolute hell. Mugabe almost quit in that fight before he ended up stopping Green. So, like, you know, Green was a legit yeah, middleweight. These dudes fighter. who were, like, quote-unquote scrubs were, like, hard-ass no, scrappers. Yeah, yeah. All, Clint Jackson, like you said, a 76 Olympian, Tony Braxton, learned that, like, all these guys were good fighters. They were all contenders. Maybe not to the cusp of what was going on, but look at the era that they're fighting in. Regardless, with his limited skill set, but still just his tenacity and everything like that, he was tearing through these guys, stopping them, sometimes going to distance, but nonetheless, just making quality television, man. Everybody was like, yo, you cannot miss a Frank the Animal Fletcher fight. And then it all came to a halt when he fought another guy who had the same similar mindset and same yeah. headstrong thing, Wilfred Scipion. Yeah, dude, they just kind of locked up in a bad way. They just kind of, uh, I think Scipion was a guy who, uh, style-wise, it's not a perfect match, but almost like a Howard Eastman type of guy where he's yes. like really not out to do a ton offensively, but like definitely prevent you from whatever it is you're trying to do. Like get in there, work a little bit, and then tie he's you up. strong as a bull Scipion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like not to, not to take anything away from him. Just, he was just kind of like, get in there, work a little bit, tie you up. Yep. Work a little bit, tie you up that type of fighter. And so super frustrating to deal with if you didn't know what to do, or if you were a guy kind of like Frank Fletcher, who didn't have a ton of power to, to get him off of you. You know what I mean? Like not enough power to get him off you. And you yourself are a come forward fighter without a ton of nuance. So it's like, shit, you know, they just kept <laughs> colliding and Scipion got the better of it because he knew what to do in that situation. And, you know, uh, after that fight, uh, after Frank Fletcher loses a decision, yeah. he himself actually 
went right on to the interview and said, you know, he, I guess I just didn't have it tonight. I don't know. I don't say he beat me fair and square, but who do you, who do you think was carrying on about this? Who do you think was making a big fucking deal about her son losing this decision, Harris? Oh, of course, man. You know, my favorite <laughs> loose, like it's Frank's mom. It, it was like, the thing about Fletcher is that like he was he was at the cusp. It really was like Fletcher Mania was at was at its peak at that point. Like you said, he was on an incredible run, and the way he was featured on television, the way um his mom was featured, everything was going on. Like you couldn't really you know you couldn't beat that. He was featured in Ring Magazine, which was a prominent one. If you look back and try to find the old issue, sometimes it's sometimes the headline. I remember in, uh, like in the magazines in the 90s when they gave you the, like the listings of the back issues you can buy. Mm. The headline was Frank Fletcher. It wasn't Dwight Cowie. So the first time I saw the issue and I saw Cowie on the cover, I got kind of confused because I was like, wait a minute, all the magazines I ever read, it said Frank Fletcher that was the feature. Like it was right there. And had he fought Hagler, that would have been a big event. Would have been in a massacre? Absolutely. Hagler would have thrashed him eight ways to Sunday. Yeah, but, um, now that you know that now and now we know but he would have made it fun you know he would have made it fun but this was 1983 Hagler at his peak this was before he went from Burns this was before anything Hagler was still brooding and looking for a major super fight and um well and he would have been pissed that they dared to put somebody who they thought was a star in with them he would have been like bitch motherfucker Fletcher probably would have been more well I don't know Hagler was still Hagler was fighting for his popularity like obviously he needed the four kings to really like boost where he got and like the Duran fight didn't really get him to where we needed to because the fight, as competitive as it was, it wasn't that exciting. And so, and it was very close. So people were still kind of like, man, it took the Hearns fight to really push him over that hump, as you know, and everybody else knows. But um, 83 Hagler, no, he was brooding, pissed off, you know, complaining that no one wanted to give him a shot and still trying to like, you know, claw his way for respect. And um, yeah, Fletcher's probably lucky he wasn't curb stomped on that one. Hagler is so beloved this many years years later that it's difficult to even fathom that at the time he was somebody who even at the midst of yeah. like even at the height of his career he felt as like they were still slighting his ass like he's like what the fuck but like he, he him and Larry Holmes were the same ilk and even if they weren't like I think Hagler would always was even back it, then was more beloved than Holmes was but he still felt like he always wanted more you know he wanted he had a certain level where he was trying to attain. He felt he deserved it rightfully. So, right. And he felt that no one was like giving it to him. So, and it's, it's, it's like part madness. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's fucking insane. Yeah. Like, bro, like you look at you, you know, you're like one of the biggest stars in boxing and in the world, but also it, it, that type of mindset is the same thing that got him there. That's what got, that's what made him one totally that, what he totally. was. So it's like, Absolutely. You know, but regardless, back to back to Fletcher, you're you're 100 percent, dude. You're like he was so lucky he did not run into Hagler, and he's lucky that Scipion stopped him in his tracks. Scipion got Hagler and got curb stomped himself. Yeah, yeah, oh, poor yeah, Wilfred Scipion Hagler just treated him harshly, bro. He didn't give a fuck. But that was that's pretty much like I said. Hagler had this kind of mindset where he was like, "You're gonna send them in with me, like you're you're gonna with me." Like, and so he was just like, all right, but I'm going to send him back to you broken. And that's what he did. You know, well, some, sometimes yeah. it took a little bit out of him too, but, but he did, he sent, he sent their asses broken. But uh, that was, but the thing is, man, unfortunately for Fletcher, that was at his peak. Once that loss happened, exactly. that was for him. 
because it was, it was a sharp downturn. Yeah. Oh, totally. So he wins a fight again after soon after that. He beats um. If you look at his record, uh, he beats a Curtis Razor Ramsey. Razor Ramsey was that type of guy again. Um, he wasn't a contender. He wasn't even like a fringe contender. He was more of like a club fighter, journeyman guy. But he fought a who's who of, of who you can imagine. Usually went the distance. A very tough guy. But if you're able to go anywhere in your career, you should beat him. Fletcher does. And then he runs into an absolute bull in his next fight against a guy by the name of Juan Domingo Roldan. Yeah, El Martillo. Yes. Man. Juan, Juan Roldan, obviously um, a bit player in the 80s when it comes to the Four Kings, but still a player in his power, was just a beast, man. You know, if if you watched, um, let's say, if you were, if you were like, you became a fan of the 90s, early 2000s, you can kind of compare like a Jorge Castro to him to a degree, maybe. It's a good comparison, right? Also Argentine. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, like a strong. Really uh, strong guy, but had a craftiness to him that you didn't really, you know, expect. Yeah, and like pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah pain, hard, hard enough of a punch that, like, you really had to be careful. Yeah. Strong as an ox, really rugged, but still crafty, too. It wasn't like an absolute bull. Like, all these guys, people sometimes, sometimes label them as just straight-up sluggers, and they're really not. Victor Galendez wasn't like that, and neither was rolled out. Roldan had a way about him that knew how to fight. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to brutalize guys like Frank Fletcher or James Kinchin or people of the ilk. Regardless, when he ran into Roldan, Roldan was on the way up. Fletcher was on the way down. Roldan had been brooding, and another guy that had been deserving of a title shot that had been passed over for X, Y, and Z and what was going on and was just getting pissed off and, you know, trying to get his own going. And by the time he got in, by the time he got in with, um, with, with Fletcher he just brutalized them it, it's it's on YouTube there's like bad copies there's good copies but regardless of how you watch it it's it's you know something that you can like rate like rated x it's really bad well you see you see these the the tiers like the levels you know t-i-e-r-s the tiers of like these fighters here playing out basically in real time so you get like uh, obviously toward the top is the quote unquote four kings. You know you got Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, and Duran more or less pretty much over everybody at 154 and 160 for the most part. Uh, obviously, there's some stylistic issues here and there with other people, uh, and and I don't want to slight Benitez either because he belongs in there. But regardless, uh, you know then you see those other guys, the Kinchens, the Roldans, the those kind of levels like Scipion probably be a little bit below there, but those kinds of guys are there. And then you could obviously see that below there, wherever it was, Frank Fletcher was below there. He had hit his ceiling below these other fighters that were totally. contenders. And that's exactly what it wound up playing out for the rest of his career. He hit roll down. That was it. You know, he didn't have enough uh, either strength or punching power to hold him off. And, you know, that's pretty much anybody who beat rolled on did they had enough strength or punching power to, to either, you know, take what he had or, and then put it on his ass and yeah. he did not. And then of course he runs into John Mugabe, similar, oh. similar situation, except Mugabe can actually punch. And it's like, well, what is he going to do against somebody like John Mugabe? And then finally, absolutely nothing. Finally, anyway. a guy that, that you mentioned Curtis Parker. And by the time he fought Curtis Parker, Curtis Parker was way past it himself too. Like Curtis Parker was a guy that came on the scene when he was like a top prospect, a contender-ish, was like around 1980 himself. That fight happened in 1985. Yep. So by the time that fight happened, they were both washed. But um, 
Parker obviously still had a little bit more than, than Fletcher did. Fletcher, if you, when you know their styles, Parker was a boxer. Fletcher wasn't. Parker was an aggressive boxer. Fletcher was just an out and out, you know, coming out to be a very aggressive guy. So if you put them together in 1985 when both are past it, who do you think is the more fresh guy? Probably Parker. But the Mugabe fight, there's photos of it in uh, Ring Magazine and other ones. There's like a very one famous one where you see Fletcher, like almost like the bare knuckle photo of the guy splayed out over the ropes like that. And you see Mugabe about to just like, you know, wallop him. It, it's bad stuff, man. Mugabe treated him like a rag doll, dude. He just, it, yeah. the rise and fall of the animal Fletcher, I mean, it, careers like that don't last long but yeah. when they do they they provide a lot of good memories and then they just flame out and the referee for that mugabe fight was actually our, one of my least favorite referees of all time joe cortez mm. and it actually affirmed that night bro i can't i just can't stand him i never thought he was pretty much any good whatsoever <clears throat> i'm i'm gonna get absolutely skinned a fucking live when i go to a hall of fame bro there's gonna like every uh, every other person i run into is gonna say yeah i remember when you said that shit on twitter they're gonna run into somebody i remember when you said that shit on your fucking podcast you dickhead and i'm gonna be like why am i here this is awful. Anyway, Joe Cortez. Was, back, man. I'm, don't worry about it. It was horrible. I'm just going to have to learn how to Hadouken everybody. But <laughs> fucking Joe Cortez, after this fight, I was reading about this earlier today. Yeah. There were several writers. It wasn't just one. Several writers were like, what the fuck? Joe Cortez literally just allowed John Mugabe to push Frank Flesher through the ropes and then punch him as he's through the ropes like you several times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. and they were like, they were like, it was a clear foul. He just let him do it over and over and over, and then he wound up getting stopped in the fourth round and got brutalized. And so, anyway, I don't think anybody was saying that Frank Fletcher like was gonna win that fight or anything. It was just that he got handled roughly. He basically got that Roberto Duran fucking, you know, Davey Moore treatment where he just absolutely raked his ass for a couple of rounds, you know? So I'm not saying I love it. I'm not saying that's what should happen. It's just when you're washed as fuck, that's what happens. And then he clearly, after that fight, the downturn was so, so steep. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you specifically why actually. So the Mugabe fight was in August of 1984. That last Curtis Parker fight was six months later in February of 1985. What was he doing in that time? I'll tell you precisely. So for over about the span of about four months from that December 84 to March 1985, Frank Fletcher was placed on probation. Uh, he was charged with shooting a man in West Philadelphia, charged with kicking a woman he lived with, charged with hitting a man in the head with a hammer after an argument Jeez. and finally charged with breaking a guy's jaw in a bar fight. So he had befriended a Philadelphia writer, Elmer Smith, mm -hmm. who, who was a black writer around this time, which I mean, sounds even crazy because it's like the eighties. Right. So you're like, what, you know, fucking civil rights, it's like 20 years oh, from yeah. before this shit. But there really weren't all that many black lead writers in at this time even, but he had befriended this writer, Elmer Smith, and he actually wound up turned him, turning himself in like with the help of Elmer Smith uh, because he had gone on the run. He was on probation and he, while visiting like a probation office or whatever, they had take, they had put someone in charge of watching him so he wouldn't run. And while in the bathroom, he escaped and he went on the run. 
And so he, he contacted this writer, Elmer Smith, and wound up, you know, making some sort of deal to turn himself in. I mean, so he, this is just in four months, bro. Like this is not even outside of this, is not the time in 75 where he stabbed the guy in the back with a butcher knife. You know, mm-hmm. he, there's like tons of shit here, right? Like there's a laundry list. So his old manager, Marty Feldman, uh, said that he thought that Frank's win over Hard Rock Green was what had ruined him because Feldman said that he got a lot of attention after the win. He got a chunk of money and then he was able to buy a car, which changed the dynamic of his training and that he stopped showing up to the gym like, you know, uh, how he had been and like not as diligently or whatever since he had a car and started getting into trouble soon after that. And he started working as a bouncer after the Curtis Parker fight. uh, And that's uh, not long after he wound up getting hemped for violating his probation. He was sentenced to five to 10 years for assault and wound up first at Graterford, which was the prison Bernard Hopkins spent time in. And then he eventually transferred to a place in Dallas, Pennsylvania, which was a state correctional institute. Um, At some point during this period, he converted to Islam. Uh, That was in the late 80s. And he seemed to make a big change in his life, at least temporarily. I was reading an interesting interview from him, actually. He seemed to really acknowledge, uh, it, it, it seemed fairly lucid for him. And he seemed to acknowledge that there was a lot of abuse from his mom. Mm-hmm. And that because of his dad's absence in his life and the abuse from his mom, that those things really had affected him and negatively affected the direction of his life. Uh, but unfortunately, after being released from prison in the early 90s, he in 1995 was shot in the abdomen and in the ass and then in 1996 uh he finally was sent to prison for 22 years after he allegedly threatened a video store owner with a gun and a gun was found when the cops wound up pulling him over which i imagine was also in a minimum a huge parole violation or something like that or probation violation And so he was sent to a high security facility in Beaumont, Texas, and he was scheduled for release in 2014. And I couldn't find a damn thing after that. Um, Yeah. Like I said, I knew he was in the, in the article I read about Anthony Fletcher, they mentioned the same thing, how he was convicted and sentenced sentenced to prison for 22 years. But um, since then, the same thing, I'm, I'm assuming he's out now. After, because he would have been released around what ninety, I know, around twenty sixteen or so. I would imagine, yeah, because he he kept getting in trouble when he was in prison, and uh, I would imagine he probably got extra time tacked on. But I don't know. He's one of those guys too, man. It'd be fascinating to hear, and if there's someone can look him up and find out what's going on with him today, to like hear an interview with him or just to get a recap, that would be fascinating. I, I bet I bet you Pelts would know, but he, oh, totally. he ain't gonna answer me. But I bet you Pelts would know. But with you know Frank Fletcher being such a popular commodity and you know captivating audiences in the early '80s, um, you have to say, man, at this point too, you know it's it's unfortunate that his brother, who was another very probably better boxer than Frank ever was, definitely was a better boxer than Frank was. More talented, um, for more, sure. Much more talented um probably had the better overall career when you look at it um close to it and like just 
you know, the potential for actually reaching the top of a division was definitely more than Frank, and that's Anthony. He was the middle son, so Frank is the oldest son of the fighters. Anthony's the middle son. Uh, there's absolutely no question, at least uh, if you're going by his amateur accomplishments. And, I mean, the direction that his pro career seemed exactly, to be early. Yeah, it, it really seemed like he was on track to be the most successful of the of the brothers he joined the u.s army and he got out around 1975 when he was 25 um excuse me he was fairly late in life you know compared to most uh as far as finding boxing clearly very talented then when somebody finds boxing that late in life and is and is able to like do well that's mm -hmm. not you know that's that's just i guess innate talent of fighting or something among his accomplishments as an amateur, I mean, you could just go on for a moment here. Six of seven Pennsylvania State Golden Glove titles, regional title, national title, Ohio State Fair champion four years straight, which uh, at this point probably doesn't mean shit, but back then probably did mean something. Um, with all due respect, of course, I don't mean to slight anybody from Ohio. Um, <laughs> just saying. Ohio State Fair did produce some badass fights, man, and badass fighters. Uh, Ray Mancini was definitely among them for sure. And uh, so in, speaking of which, he was among the fighters that Anthony defeated in the amateurs, Milton McCrory, Ray Mancini, the Paul brothers, uh, not Jake Paul and fucking Logan Paul. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and Jimmy. Yeah. yeah. And so um, anyway, he, he actually had a lot of writers covering his amateur career, like a, a surprising amount especially for being a somewhat older amateur, but also you have to remember fighting in the shadow of, uh, and amateur wise, Howard Davis and Ray Leonard, totally. uh, it, especially given he was a lightweight. And so given his, you know, his weight range or whatever, that was right in the range of Howard Davis and Ray Leonard. And mm -hmm. those, those two, you know, Howard Davis, obviously it's, it's tough to forget about that. Now we've talked about him on other shows, especially because he just wound up being a little bit of a bust compared to what he was expected to be as an amateur. He was an incredible amateur, huge star when he turned pro. Won the won the Val Barker Trophy at the seventy six Olympics. Which, and yeah, which is the fighter of the fighter of the tournament trophy. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fighter of the tournament. And just when, in case anybody's listening, sorry. Totally. And like when you when you like think about the level of competition at that tournament, what was going down, arguably the best seven, arguably the best U S team ever assembled. And then everyone else that you had to fight at that point, including good looking kid, years. great smile, nice guy, just incredible fighter. Yeah. And like I said before, I mentioned on a previous show when they had a 30th anniversary at the boxing hall of fame and they brought everyone that was able to attend um, from the 76 team to assemble that day. Not the last person to speak wasn't Sugar Ray Leonard. It was Howard Davis, who was the captain of the team. And I never forgot that. And I always like thought that was pretty awesome because like Leonard spoke, but when Leonard spoke, he spoke just still as a member of the team. He didn't try to like encompass, you know, his whole thing and make it about him. Thank goodness. <laughs> he, he really didn't. You know, he really didn't. He was cool about it. He spoke, but he was like, obviously he was the star, but like he knew what it was about. And then he let like, you know, he sat down and let Davis do it and davis was the one that really summed it up and was like he looked so proud being over there knowing that was his team and he was the captain. He's a great coach too so i mean he like he's, yeah. you know. so it, it was it was really nice for him to, Gosh, it was really nice to see that. it was really nice yeah rest in peace absolutely 
um, it was really, really cool to, to see that because, you know, for a person, like you said, his career was kind of a bust as a pro. And so for him to be able to have that moment and know that like he was the captain of that and still kind of like the man of the entire Olympics. Yeah. He deserved that moment. But yeah. Remind me almost kind of like a, almost like a Harold Weston kind of situation. You know what I'm yes. saying? Like where yeah, yeah. somebody's just incredible amateur showed so much promise and so much was expected and they just, just didn't quite have it, you know? And uh, as a pro, the errors too, man, tough error. Yeah. And, and there's, and that's the thing is there was nothing to be ashamed of for either of them for the losses that they had and the fact that they weren't able to get to the pinnacle in an era like that, like it's totally fine. You were, you were a really good fighter anyway. And uh, you know, fighting in the shadow of those two fighters in that division, the lightweight division or around the lightweight division was tough. I mean, ask Aaron Pryor, dude, excuse me. And that's, I mean, obviously he made his own way, but throughout much of his career, he felt as though he was trying to fight against that force that he was trying to you know fight against fighting in somebody's shadow and so you know he uh anthony fletcher had a pretty big hill to climb however it did seem like he was about to be climbing that shit um he didn't really seem like he had a whole lot of money backing him and so his trainer at the time when he was an amateur encouraged him not to go pro and so he actually stayed as an amateur fairly late However, when he was pretty early in his amateur career, he handed a, a little fighter named Livingston Bramble his first pro loss. Dude, that's pretty big. It was, especially considering that Bramble at that point wasn't the guy that everybody you know learned to know about later on in his career. Man, Bramble was a very, very uh, top prospect and a tough ass individual himself. That was a big win. You know, before Bramble hit the skids, you know, um, when Ed Rosario basically finished him. He was looked upon as part, you know, potentially um, the the guy that was going to be Camacho. I mean, that was the fight that they were looking to make. And at that point, his only loss was to Anthony Fletcher. You know, Fletcher was a very – and the thing that you got to mention, too, out of this is that, like, I don't know if we really talked about his style. He was the complete, complete opposite of his brother. That's true. You yeah. know, like Frank Fletcher was – even though he had a game plan and knew kind of what he was going with and stuff like that, he was a slam bang guy that didn't mind taking a few punches to land one of them. He always made for really exciting fights. Fletcher was the complete opposite. He was a boxer. He was a really, really smooth boxer. He was a guy that just knew how to move and just knew how to put punches together and everything well with that. And didn't make sometimes for the most exciting fights, but you could appreciate what he was doing in there because he was so good at it. And early on his career, before the ailments started happening, before, you know, the outside things started happening, dude, he was smooth as butter, man. Like, you know, by all accounts, he looked like a future champion. Like you said, he was able to beat guys like Bramble and um, another fighter, another future champion in uh, Freddie Pendleton, who always kind of had a funky record from the very beginning, but everybody always knew he could fight. So, yeah, one of those guys who was like, you know, probably underrated because if you just look at his record it's just like oh who is he you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. but like totally. much better fighter than that and on top of that uh anthony fletcher was he wasn't just smooth like stylistically he was a good looking dude yes. he was tall he was lean he had definitely that kind of body for that kind of style you know to get on his stick and move a little bit more uh a little bit better than his brother his brother frank looked a little bit goofier you know, he looked like a, he looked like a little bit more like a brawler. He looked had like he had kind of like the ball of the body of a brawler a little bit more, whereas Anthony was just a little bit more polished, a little bit smoother. And, um, 
you know, uh, so in 1984, he had, so he had a pretty good, a pretty good pro career. And like I said, seemed on track to be, you know, a, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you would say that he would be on track to be a champion, but at very at the worst to be a really solid contender right around like the lightweight ish division, except for in 1984 in June of 1984, he ran into a dude named Frank Newton. And I mean, he got a draw, which in and of itself is like, you know, no travesty, except for the problem was in this fight, he suffered a really, really bad retinal tear. And that just kind of like, uh, that just basically derailed the shit out of him. Or, I'm sorry, it was a partial Great retinal make tear. You blind. <laughs> What's that? That's the thing that finished Sugar Ray Leonard for a time period. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. ended the career of many a fighter. You know, there have been uh, fighters that have, you know, later on in life had no eye or couldn't see. I mean, we're talking about Israel Vasquez, even, you know, a mm -hmm. guy who's basically doesn't have much sight right now. And he's like 40 or something. So in any case, um, he it, he actually wound up having to sit out. That kind of derailed his career for uh, for a little bit because of a bad that bad injury and on top of that uh retinal tears like you said ray leonard right around this time had wound up making like several different retirements in the years leading up to this so there had been a little bit more uh publicity surrounding eye injuries and boxing because already this guy was fighting in the shadow of a ray leonard and then he wound up getting the exact same injury as ray leonard is the you know not sure if that totally counts as a you know, textbook irony, but it's pretty fucking close. But uh, either way, he wound that up getting that was the whole start of him being snake bitten in his career. Exactly. That basically started the end and it wound up uh, derailing him for two years. He took two years off and then uh, didn't didn't come back to that Philadelphia area right away. He wound up having to kind of go elsewhere, I would imagine, to kind of skirt the regulations and shit like that because of his eye, because of physicals. But even so, he couldn't really keep a, uh, a he couldn't keep winning consistently over the course of a handful of years. Over the course of six years, he had four losses. So, I mean, it's and it wasn't just like it was uh, he lost he lost to fighters who were like coming up but guys who probably a few years early probably would not have lost to but he also had like him didn't he suffer from bell's palsy at one point he had a he had a whole series of yeah. basically like ailments too i mean it that's like just... i know besides outside thing like he had ailments and stuff that would like be able to derail him like um yeah he, he it just looked like you know someone was like a devil was out someone was out there to get him like, you know, someone had a voodoo doll on him. Something yeah, like I said earlier, it was like with him, it was just a really bad luck or something. Yeah. And then like certain fights, like you mentioned, he loses to a guy named Tim Burgess. Then he loses to Miguel Santana. Um, Miguel Santana is the same one that we're talked about with the, with the Terry Norris fights, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just less said about him, the better. But at least Santana in the 80s, before he took acting classes, was a decent fighter and um, was... At that point, after Fletcher was, you know, not only was he having outside of the ring issues, that was, was Luis Santana. Miguel oh, Santana, was, he Christ. fought Pernell Whitaker. He fought, but he fought Pernell Whitaker though. Luis Santana, I'm so sorry, man. I, I'm, I'm, I get these dudes mixed up completely. No, but but, uh, but he fought like Terrence Ali, Pernell Whitaker. He fought no, like no, no, dudes, yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. No, but a tough guy nonetheless. I mean, and just yeah, we can't get it spot on all the time. It's okay. <laughs> nah, man, we, we blow it sometimes. But 
basically, you know, with his career, like you said, he started hitting the skids because he had a lot of things going on outside of the ring with him. Like, uh, not only did he have a detached retina, um, he had Bill's palsy. Like, if you, to compare that, I guess, you know, Jim Ross, the, the famous wrestling announcer, he suffers from Bell palsy. Like, it's a pretty debilitating disease, especially if you're a fighter. Like, you know, having half your jaw face paralyzed or whatever's going on with it must be, ugh. Yeah, and I don't even understand the nature of it either because he seemed like he was totally fine years later. Like there mm-hmm. wasn't even an issue. So, or if there was, it wasn't, you know, plainly visible or whatever. So I, I don't know what the hell was going on with this dude, but he obviously had hit a, the, at best a rough patch. The only wins that he wound up getting after that point were actually against guys who just like fighters who just weren't very good, like fighters who were not on that level, like at all. And so then he winds up getting in uh, against Donald Stokes in 1990 and Oba and losing to them both by stoppage. Now, obviously, uh, Oba Carr, very recognizable. Donald Stokes, one of the few fighters from Mississippi that, you know, is even remotely recognizable for sure. But Donald I mean, Stokes had a few fights to his, to his credit, I remember. Yeah, for sure. So, but there ain't that many names. But yes, I mean, he's I mean, from Mississippi, dude. Like, again, yeah, the, yeah you got like Tiger Stokes. Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's only it, a few names on his record where there's some aliases. That's not, not, that's not the real that's name. That's what I'm saying. You know, that's what I'm saying. That circuit, that circuit's rough. And it's not to say that losing to a Donald Stokes or losing to an Obakar is anything to be ashamed of, but it's just that it was clear. Especially not to Obakar, man. At that point, too, like in 1990, when that fight took place, Fletcher had a lot of out of the ring issues going on. Um, he had the elements going on in his career. And Obakar, even though he was still early in his career, was clearly on the rise. Any Kronk prospect who had like 10 to 12 fights or whatever clearly had a big background. Um, Carr turned pro very young. He was still a teenager. He was being groomed for greatness early on. Like everybody was yep. like hyped on him. Yep. And that was clearly like just a bump in the road. Like you knew where the directions were going in that fight. Yeah, no question. But you could also see just looking at, at, uh, at Anthony's career too. You see where he was fighting. Convention Hall, Philadelphia. Yeah. Blue Horizon, Blue Horizon. You could see that he had gotten hooked back in and he was being guided, at least briefly, back to contention. And so he got in with he got in with a Donald Stokes. Like, all right, buddy, you beat these three guys who you should beat. You know, Blue Horizon and she got a couple bucks. Now you got to get in with somebody who's undefeated and somebody who could potentially kick your ass. And that's what happened. And but then getting in with with Obakar, who was a uh, young up and comer at that point, clearly was a sign that like, but it's it's over. You know what I mean? But also on top of that, the outside the ring shit, apart from his ailments, it, it was it that last chunk in his career. It's actually amazing that that happened whatsoever, because late in 1989, uh, Anthony was sitting in his car at a park, and he was shot five times. <laughs> by drug dealers and the friend sitting with him in the car was shot and killed they were watching a pickup basketball game so i mean like obviously he had started drifting into a life that we've talked about countless times on the show already that is just a harsh life unforgiving and obviously got his friend killed and he even returned to boxing after this point and finished his career but he had after after that point, after those two losses, started selling drugs because he said the money dried up. That was his source of income for a time, and he needed to pay rent some way. He didn't know how else he was about to pay rent. Um, and so in 1992, 
he shot and killed a man named Vaughn Christopher when the latter allegedly pulled a gun on him and the two fought over it. It's it's such a sketchy thing, man, because we've discussed this before. This this whole thing on Anthony Fletcher, the first time I found out about it or read about it was in a Ring magazine in the 90s. Um, our buddy and, and listener, Kilpat, would probably be able to find the issue, but it was around like 98 or so. So I'm going to, I want to say either Delahoyer or Evander Holyfield, one of those guys was in it. But there was a whole feature on Anthony Fletcher because not to jump too far ahead, but he was put on death row for this. And they were talking about how much of an injustice this whole case was. And what it really was, if you looked at the whole facts of it, you know, we've talked about the justice system and how the, how fucked up the justice yeah, system. Charles can be. Newell, we you know we talked about a whole bunch of yeah, a whole bunch of guys, and how many people have been screwed over over the years because of how things are done. And Anthony Fletcher, unfortunately, was a victim of that as well. All right, by yeah, all that's not to say that he's a little innocent babe in all of this, but a lot yeah. of this shit that happened did happen to it, him. Exactly, but by, by by all accounts, um, Von Christopher, like you said, walked up to him um i think they i think it was that he said from what i remember reading now he stuck up because he stuck up a card game or he did something where he robbed everybody on it and fletcher eventually ran into him again and saw him like a little bit later walked and land into him again confronted him about it they got into a scuffle like you said punched him they started going into it and he said christopher pulled out a pistol on him right so once he did that, they, there was more of a scuffle. The gun went off a few times. Von Christopher ends up getting shot in the leg and gets sh- shot, I think, somewhere else. Both of them were deemed non-life-threatening injuries. But still, so, I mean, serious, very serious injuries, but like if they were treatable, you know. Yeah, with and, medical intervention, you'd be all right type of shit. But the key thing is, is that it wasn't that Fletcher pulled the gun and shot him. There was a scuffle going on. The gun just charged twice while that happened. It wasn't like he pulled that out. That's the key part. That's a key part there. Anyways, long story short, Christopher goes to the hospital for his injuries. Um, there's a lot of blood being lost now because of this, yada, yada, yada. And another key component is that they tell his family, um, listen, he needs a blood transfusion and he needs this done. Do we you have your permission, whatever, to do this because this will potentially save him. And they told him, no, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. Can't, you know, don't believe in that, whatever. And so because of that happening, Christopher ends up passing away. And so because he passes away from that, obviously Anthony Fletcher now is charged with murder. And this is is where the whole drama started from that. I mean, it's kind of like where it started and ended, unfortunately, because the following... Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like the following year, so he's charged with and convicted with Anthony Fletcher is, that is, with an execution-style murder, they said of uh of uh just lost his Vaughn Christopher um and so that's what apparently the evidence that everybody's testifying to says and he's given he's put on death row um so basically which is pretty wild in itself when you think <sighs> about it like considering everything like they like I don't know man I it's yeah I mean I, I guess it's uh we well, not again, not to go to on too much of a rant, but we've already established we know that the criminal justice system is extremely biased and generally biased along racial lines, ethnic lines, and uh, you know the black men are going to get harsher sentences than white men, 
it's just you know i'm not saying it's it's not good obviously it's just that that's that's something that we've seen bear out more than once and so it's wild that he's even put on death row but what's even wilder is that he spends 30 years on death row this dude just got a released last year and the reason why he got released last year in 2021 it's like i gotta take a breath before even saying this because it's just like it's frustrating and just crazy but basically what wound up happening was there's a lot of details on this case but everywhere from like pretty much top to bottom the cops who had arrested him the cops who collected evidence the detectives who collected evidence and shit the evidence was mishandled uh people lied in court the the prosecutors were basically just you know had that kind of like whatever the fuck you got to do to get a conviction type of mindset uh the medical examiner the chief medical examiner who didn't even uh who wasn't even doing the actual examination was the one who testified it's like i mean it was just like a total fucking sham it was a absolutely a total fiasco. fucking sham and so he winds he up getting no chance he wound he wound up yeah it was like all bases were covered and he wound up getting convicted on some shit that would just wasn't true like the evidence was like fabricated uh etc and so then when they had gone back like even even more frustrating is that he had gotten his conviction overturned initially he had gotten his conviction overturned in the early 2000s and then that decision was reversed like fuck and so then and a lot and, of the stuff like and a lot of stuff was never brought up in the original in the original trial like what i mentioned about the family saying they were jehovah's witnesses and everything and like doing that like all those doctor's reports i don't think was ever released yeah like shit was like stricken and like not everything allowed to be brought like, up no. and then yeah, listen and was, then other stupid nuts. shit like this so we mentioned i don't know if we mentioned this but his nickname in boxing was two guns right and the prosecutor um correct me if i'm wrong Put it out there. They said he was known as two guns because he was known on the street for always carrying two guns. Like, and because there was nobody there to challenge it, that that just that just went on his belief. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was, everything was stacked. That was ridiculous. All these things were stacked against him. And like you mentioned in the beginning, man, he was no choir boy himself. Like, yeah, there was there was you know he did whatever, but like the way there was the way this was put on him, the way everything was stacked on him was absolute horseshit. It was just bad and it was a way to get someone locked up and just uh you know whatever their agenda was for that but to put him on death row and what he had to go through was absolute insanity man yeah, for years so like it, it was sad because they put his case out there everything was really out there it wasn't like they would just you know this wasn't hearsay this was the facts of what happened with his you know with his confrontation with christopher he didn't go out there intending to kill him if you're gonna go out there and like absolutely murder someone you're not gonna shoot them in the in the in the calf and you're not gonna shoot them in like you know, their leg or something. You, there's other like viable places, you know what I mean? Especially a street savvy person. So n- nothing really added up with that. He was just a yeah, person. Yeah, you're not going to execute somebody like in their hand or some shit. No, you know? I, really? <laughs> no, of course not. So, I mean, you know, like you said, the stacks were, you know, this, the cards were stacked against him. Not only did his career have to, you know, go unfulfilled and all the shit he had to go through it, now he had to go through this. It was really sad. Yeah, dude. And so I, I don't know what's going on with him now. I mean, I hope he's okay, but goddamn, he spent nearly 30 years in prison and having just to, uh, you know, assimilate back to non-prison has got to be tough, I would imagine. 
But the but fact that he was able softer. to get out and beat that case is beautiful, man. That's it's that's softer. really really intense. Totally. Yeah. It's but he was able to do it. So much time, but it's yeah, so, it's great yeah. that he got out. Um, because uh, a lot of times, man, it looked like it was going to be hopeless. Like there were times where they suspended the sentence so they could do more investigation. Then they redid the sentence, and I can't imagine being on death row like that knowing what knowing what went down and knowing that like you have a date where it's supposed to all end and who knows like uh, but yeah he, he said that he got um i think that he had said that he got to shower a couple times a week and that that was his only time to get out of his cell and otherwise it was 24 hours in his cell Sheesh. so i mean I don't know, man. Like I, I'm not trying to say like I've been in prison. I'm just saying that I, I, I hope that I'm smart enough to be able to imagine what that would be like and to know that that would fucking suck and that I would don't want that ever. And then I don't want that for anybody, really. You know, like that's, but that's a whole another motherfucking podcast. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it's it's awful shit. And the fact that he wound up spending 30 years or so for for a crime, the nature of which he did not commit. You know, he spent more than his motherfucking time. So like going to jail for the whole situation, whatever, I, I kind of get it for, for the for the factors involved, but only for a few right. blows, for a certain right. for only a certain time. You know what I mean? People have done so much worse than what went down with that and got off after like a few years. Yeah. So that worst shit happened at the fucking Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, ding fuck. ding ding ding. But anyways, that's like again, that's a whole yeah, other that's this whole other shit. Here. But yeah, like, maybe that's a, maybe that's another subject. The January sixth, the fights or some shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sure, sure. Let's do it. No, um, not at all. We're not gonna do that. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but Anthony Fletcher, man, the fact that he finally got out made me happy because as a kid, when I first read that article, as a person who I'm, when I was a kid, like I was in, I was interested in stuff, but nothing really like kind of like grasped me where I was just like really in depth with it, especially if it involved like you know stuff involving the law and all that because i you know i adhd i probably still have it today like you know my mind was fleeting but i just remember reading that article as a kid and being totally engrossed by it and always kind of wondering whatever would happen to him over the years you know what i mean like you know this was still like in the internet in its infancy when this article came out so i would be like you know there wasn't like a lot of info you could get on him one i think a couple of years later or a year later or so ring wrote like a little blurb in the beginning of the pages of their magazine like round one or some shit where they mentioned like an update on what was going on with him you know whether like he he had like a staying and then you know got redone whatever it was but they had like an update but then again you wouldn't really hear much and it wasn't until like the mid-2000s or the 2010s or whatever it was where i read like an article online really going in depth and i knew i was like oh at least he's still alive and they were talking about what was going on with him and all that and now you mentioning that he finally got released kind of brings closure to it all. So, yeah. And I mean, like, this is just all part of one family, you know, like, we haven't even we all, all these characters and there's still one more, although I didn't, I'm not going to lie. There's not that there's not nearly as much info on the last brother, uh, Troy 40 Fletcher. That's the youngest son of Lucille and easily with all due respect, the least talented of the brothers in terms of accomplishments. He lost to Paul Spatafora and Chucky Chornofsky way late in his career our guy our action fighter chucky e. t been on espn a number of times but um really like hey, i don't every really family have... has a bobby quarry right what's that so every family has a bobby quarry yeah 
pretty much. Okay. Yeah, and unfortunately, he was kind of the Bobby Quarry. Uh, I didn't really even have much info on him. His, his record's on BoxRec, and you can kind of ascertain, you know, for yourself. It was just kind of a middling record, kind of journeyman status. Um, but, I mean, nonetheless, all of these characters fit into the fighting Fletcher family, man. The, the matriarch Lucille was the head of it all. Just a bunch of characters, dude. Yeah, man, it was a good time to like go back and, and talk about this era, talk about the fighters, bring light to what's going on, um, bring light to the situation of Anthony Fletcher and how fucked up the, the system is. And others for that matter, yeah. And others for that matter, yeah. That's just the whole system in general, you know, so definitely good stuff. Yeah, dude. And also, uh, lastly, the the fighting city of Philadelphia, man, it's... Uh... Totally, man. I mean, dude, there's... If we ever did a podcast on Philadelphia boxing, there would have to be at least four, four parts or something. Like, there's so much that was involved in that. All of the fighters involved, the, the shenanigans that were involved, the players involved, the trainers, cut men, everything, man. Philadelphia has its own history, and um, the Fletchers definitely paved their way through it. So kudos to them for that. Yeah, and they're a big part of it, too. Uh, they really are. It's, it's like, it's one thing to be like, oh, man, we're a fighting family from Idaho. And like being popular in there and then saying that like you're you know you talk to random fans of philadelphia and talk about frank fletcher anthony fletcher and the whole family in general and everyone's like oh you know get all fond and fuzzy memories about it so it's like yeah there's levels to this <laughs> just recent enough barely recent enough that there are still coherent people around who remember it happening you know just barely yeah, recent totally yeah. kind of like massachusetts i mean obviously Haglow is more famous but like if you go to like parts of Massachusetts and you talk to a few old heads who are definitely active in the Hagler era, like, you know, he still talked about in a hushed tones over there, as opposed to like asking some like random kid, like, Oh, I've heard of Marvin Hagler. Yeah. But no, like you talk to like, like an old head and like Marvin Hagler. Oh, Marvin Hagler. Yeah. 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 What, what, what you guys say? You think Sugar Ray beat him? You want, you want to fight kid? Huh? Yeah, huh? yeah. Start talking. This is Brockton. Fuck you, I, dude. I just asked if you watched the Hagler fight. I did. What about it? Nothing. Have a good day, sir. Big fan. I'm out of here. Bye. Yeah. And then you leave Doyle's Pub as you do that or something. You're like, Give me a shot for Marvin. Yeah. Chased by the Hurley boys down the street or something. Yeah. Uh, man, the Fletcher family, man, they they play a great prominent part of Philly definitely beautiful stuff yeah dude i i appreciate it because it does this episode did take some uh dig did take a little bit of digging or it did take a little bit of like you know formation to kind of put it together to put them all because they all had their own separate stories and their own kind of separate like holy shit tales you know what i'm saying so do I, I appreciate you taking the effort and doing this once more bro always fun it's always a blast doing it with you bro you kidding me this is you know. And I really appreciate that people seem to be liking it. People seem to be uh, having a lot of fun listening in and watching the history episodes lately, which I dig, dude, you know, because it's like, like I said before, the enthusiasm kind of helps get some pep in our step too and helps keeps sure. us going. So yeah, totally. man, everybody who listened in on the podcast apps, subscribe if you didn't already. And we appreciate you leave a comment or and or a rating. If you watched on YouTube, 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Subscribe and also uh, reply, comments, queries, all those sorts of things appreciated. As far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram, but also it is on Twitter and we're individually on Twitter. My dude, Eris, is on Twitter at PunchZoneEris. Me, I'm there as Patrick M. Connor, and we'll talk to you there. Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one. All right. Hey, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>